Real quick, I gotta let you in on a testing secret. With regulations and breaches on the rise, production data is no longer safe or legal for developers to use. And creating test data in-house is a complex chore that eats away valuable time. That's where Tonic comes in. They make it possible to create a true mirror of production by safely and realistically mimicking production data. So you can work on real product and steer clear of surprises at release time. Learn more at tonic.ai slash code story. So we started with a very small team of six people and a couple engineers in there that were the early, early team. What I'll say is not in that early composition are any salespeople, because what I found is that anything that puts distance between the founders who are building this first generation of the product, figuring out what we need to solve, the message gets diluted and interpreted incorrectly and so forth. So we didn't hire anybody in sales for two years. And that allowed us to just get that direct feedback from the market. I'm Eric Golden, co-founder and CEO of Strata Identity. This is Code Story. A podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries. Took six months moonlighting. There's nothing on the back end. Who share what it takes to change an industry. I don't exactly know what to do next. Took many goes to get right. Who built the teams that have their back. Our company is its people. The teams help each other achieve. Most proud of our team. Keeping scalability top of mind. All that infrastructure was a Yes, we've been fighting it as we grow. Total waste of time. The stories you don't read in the headlines. It's not an easy thing to achieve, Mike. Took it off the shelf and dusted it off and tried it again. To ride the ups and downs of the startup life. You need to really it's want it. not just about technology. All this and more on Code Story. I'm your host, Noah Labpart, and today how Eric Olden is making you capable of adding modern identity into your application within minutes. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open-sourced edge database from the creators of LibSQL. Do you put your edge computing close to your users? You should put your data there, too. Terso makes this easy, utilizing the developer experience of SQLite. Access a free starter plan at terso.tech slash codestory. Terso, welcome to the data edge. This episode is brought to you by our friends at MemberStack. MemberStack is the fastest way for you to launch a beautiful Webflow MVP with robust authentication and smooth payments integration. Join companies like Slack and American Airlines in serving millions of members every single day. Get started for free by visiting memberstack.com slash codestory. Eric Olden grew up in the Bay Area as one of the few local natives, but enjoys the mountains of Colorado now outside of Boulder. He and his family love to ski, mountain bike, and even visit the reservoir to do some surfing. Outside of these things, he is passionate about landscape architecture and does it for fun on the side. Prior to his current venture, Eric was running a large division at Oracle surrounding identity. He saw that most cloud customers were utilizing multiple clouds, but most tooling didn't allow for those cloud identities to play nice together. He saw this opportunity sitting in plain sight and then decided to step out and attack it. This is the creation story of Strata Identity. What Strata does is we create a abstraction layer, identity orchestration is what we call it, 
and it allows you to decouple your applications from your infrastructure and allow you to run and secure your applications without rewriting them so you can use whatever identity system you need. I had been running Oracle's security and identity division, and that meant a lot of big enterprises. And at Oracle, we saw that most of the customers that were moving to the cloud were doing this in multiple clouds. The opportunity was hiding in plain sight, I like to say, because we just saw very clearly that organizations weren't going to get locked into just one cloud or the other. But when you have multiple clouds, you have a new problem, which is how do you get disparate fragmented systems to interoperate? And that's what inspired me to leave Oracle and start Strata. And I'd like to think of Strata as what we're building is the VMware of identity so that we can make systems work together independent of the infrastructure that they run on. And so we started the company in 2019 and have been growing quickly ever since. Let's dive into the MVP then. So that first version of the product you built, how long did it take to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? We built our whole platform on Go. We needed a very high performant language and something that could be highly secure. And the way that we built our MVP, actually we waited almost nine months before we started writing code. And we were talking with as many people as we could and just asking them about the problems that they face and what's the most painful thing that they're trying to do that they couldn't really do. And over time, I think we, counted it for close to 150 interviews. And we got a pretty clear picture that this is a new problem that companies couldn't solve with the tools that they had. So we started to think about what would the right kind of design and architecture be for this distributed multi-cloud world. And very quickly, we realized that in order for this to work, both in the public cloud as well as the private cloud and the hybrid deployments was some architecture that could be highly distributed. And so we built from a design that would allow us to deploy what we call orchestrators in multiple places. And those places are typically near the applications you're trying to secure on whatever cloud that you're running your workloads on. We're, our customers, they run this at scale in three or four or five different clouds. And we're able to make all of these identity orchestrators work in concert with one another so that even if you're running a workload on Azure, you can use the same policy that is securing your other applications on AWS because they're all meshed together in a secure way. Think about Kubernetes. What we are doing for identity is what Kubernetes did for compute. And so a lot of the value is in the automation so that you can do these things at scale, you can do them programmatically from a DevOps standpoint and make everything work in a cohesive way. Let's stay on the MVP for a minute. I, I want to want to ask a question around decisions and trade-offs. And you've talked through, you know, kind of at a high level of few, but maybe dive into one or two around how you approached the problem and how you went after this and specifically too, how you coped with those decisions. 
The secret to good customer development is open-ended questions and an open mind. So the more open-ended the question is, the more room you've got for the person responding to really fill in the blank with what their problem is. And the thing I try and avoid in those conversations is being overly proscriptive because that leading the witness is going to lead to confirmation bias. Here's that in practice. So I'd say, here's the wrong way to do it. Noah, how are you thinking about identity orchestration and securing using distributed architecture? You may hear that question and say, I can agree or disagree with that, but I've made your response so almost binary at that point that I may lose some kind of insight that you would share if you had more openness in how you would respond to it. Once you get into the point where you want to build your MVP, one of the key things that I like to do is be very incremental and build something very quickly that is, it's as simple a solution as you can think of that allows you to solve a particular problem. And let's say that the problem metaphorically is we're trying to get from A to B. Ultimately, we're gonna build a car, but in the beginning, cars are expensive. You gotta build a motor, you gotta build tires, all these things that if we set out to build a car to get from A to B, it may take us years in order to do that. So instead, we may think of what's the simplest way to get from A to B? One real simple way is to build a skateboard. And importantly, do that quickly so you can get that into the hands of people and they can use it to go and do what they're trying to do. And you have to be comfortable knowing that you're not gonna wait until you build the complete car because let's say you can build a skateboard in three months, but building a car would take you three years. The risk of taking three years is that you may be wrong. You may learn something, the market could change. So to take the skateboard approach, now you can get someone from A to B and then ask them, what could we do to improve the skateboard? And maybe you'll get feedback, it's a little wobbly, so it'd be great if we had a handlebar. Okay, we'll add a handlebar to the skateboard and now you've got a scooter. Yeah, but that's good, but you can only go so fast. So the next iteration may call for a bicycle and so on and so forth until you eventually get to the car. But the reason that incremental model works is that you want to get that feedback so quickly from the customer. And I have a saying, I think to paraphrase Voltaire, don't make perfect the enemy of good. If you can get a good solution to market and make it better, that's so much more effective than trying to wait until you've got it perfect and then you release it because of all the risk and the costs and, and so forth. This episode is encrypted by Cypherstash. Data breaches are becoming a fact of life. Know why? One of the reasons is because developers lack the right tooling to get the job done i.e. encryption at rest tools are complex and inadequate. The solution? Encryption in use with Cypherstash. Cypherstash uses searchable encryption in use technology, providing continuous and universal protection for sensitive data. With Cypherstash, you can turn your existing database into a vault, utilizing zero trust key management, SQL native, and with no code. 
Though encryption is complicated, Cypherstash is easy to use. The tool fully supports SQL via a drop-in driver replacement, supporting the query types you know and love today. And did we mention it's fast? For queries over 100 million records, you can expect additional overhead of less than one millisecond. It's a no-brainer. Get started by reviewing their docs or downloading sample projects in Rails or Node plus SQLize today. Visit cypherstash.com slash codestory and get started protecting your data. This episode is supported by Treble. This day and age, APIs are a fact of life. And as such, product and engineering teams need tooling that is lightweight, real-time, and data-rich to help them ship and maintain APIs faster. That's where Treble comes in. Treble is an all-in-one platform for the entire API lifecycle. The product offers world-class monitoring and observability, providing more than 40 data points for each request, enabling you to understand everything from performance to user behavior. Dashboards help connecting your entire team for lifecycle collaboration. Documentation is automatically generated, saving massive amounts of time for your development team with every new release. And setting up Treble? Super easy and fast. In three simple steps, you can be up and running with their platform. Their pricing is designed to support API teams of all sizes. So get started with Treble today and automate your API ops. Did I mention they have a free forever plan? Find out more by visiting treble.com slash codestory. That's T-R-B-L-L-E dot com slash codestory. Let's move forward then. You've you've got the MVP, it's working. You have you know you're gaining some some traction. You know, you've put maybe it's the, the MVP is the skateboard, maybe a little bit further. But how did you progress the product from that point and mature it? And I think to wrap that question in a box, what I'm really looking for is how did you go about building your roadmap? How did you go about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or to address with Strata? We do everything we can to get the customer to tell us that. There's a balance between product management and customer development. And I think the the trick is to elicit feedback from your customers in a structured, consistent way, but do it in a way that's really open and easy for people to engage and to work with. Like one of the tools that we use is the ability to give someone a dollar, metaphorical dollar, and say, if you had this dollar, where would you spend the money? Would you spend all of the dollar on enhancing scalability? Would you spend half of it on security, the other half on ease of use? And when you do that with enough customers, then you get the right data set. And what I've found the right number is a dozen. These early first 12 customers are going to give you really strong feedback and oftentimes it's, hey, this is just what I needed, and that's great. You've got a, a good alignment between what you built and what customers need. Sometimes you'll find, some customers will say, if you just make these enhancements, I could use it. And so you change the product to fit that feedback. And you can move your product a little bit to expand the use cases to incorporate what that feedback is asking for. And the third category are things that show you the boundary of where your product is. And that feedback typically comes in, oh, we would buy your product. I know you built it for the cloud, but we want to run it on premises. Example in in our world would be, "Mm, we built this for the cloud. 
we're not going to make a version that only runs on premises. So we appreciate the feedback, but we're not going to go into that direction. We're going to hold the line and say, we're going to focus purely on cloud oriented customers. And the boundary is if they say it only can run inside of their data center. So those are the three kind of patterns that I'm looking for out of the sample size of 12. Usually out of 12, I think you're doing great if you've got six of them that like what you built and you've got three that teach you how to expand the product and maybe two or three that set the boundary of what you're not going to do. Let's switch to team. And so how did you go about building your team and what do you look for in those people to indicate that they're the winning horses to join you? My co-founder, Topher, our CTO, he said to me at one point, you're like Danny Ocean from Ocean's Eleven. And I said, really, what do you mean by that? George Clooney, he goes, you just always know who's going to be the safe cracker, who's going to be the driver, who's going to be the tech nerd or what have you. And to be able to pull those skills together, I think is a lot of like just human awareness, I think, in terms of the way that I look at that in an early stage startup and choosing co-founders is super important because you don't want to have too much overlap because then you just bump into each other and you find some redundancy. And so I think finding a balanced team is really important. Early on, that meant I wanted to have someone who is really amazing at uh, building software that's never been built before. and also find someone who's really strong in product that could come from the industry with a lot of experience. And then I found people who were really good at operations and who can help set up and run the business side of the business. And then a person to effectively our sales engineer, be able to talk with customers at a deeper technical level. Marketing was the other key piece, someone who help tell the story, create content. So we started with a very small team of six people and a couple engineers in there that were the early, early team. What I'll say is not in that early composition are any salespeople. Because what I found is that anything that puts distance between the founders who are building this first generation of the product, figuring out what we need to solve, the message gets diluted and interpreted incorrectly and so forth. So we didn't hire anybody in sales for two years. And that allowed us to just get that direct feedback from the market. This episode was automatically optimized by Cast. If you run cloud-native software on AWS, Google Cloud, or Azure, you know how out of hand the bill can get. This uncertainty hurts your business, but you can solve it with Cast AI. Cast AI automates cloud costs, performance, and security management for hundreds of companies of all sizes. The platform's customers begin saving immediately and cut an average of over 60%. So before you go and sign a multi-year contract with a cloud provider or lay people off, check out what Cast AI can do for you. To get you saving even faster, CastAI is offering a free cloud cost audit with a personal consultation. Visit cast.ai slash codestory to get started. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open source edge database from the creators of LibSQL, the popular fork of SQLite. 
If you put your edge computing close to your users, like with Netlify or Vercel edge functions or Cloudflare workers, you should put your data there too in order to maximize performance gains at the edge. Terso makes it easy with a developer experience of SQLite in a distributed database you can replicate much closer to your users than traditional database offerings in the cloud. Terso's lightweight, easy to use, and free to get started. The team at Terso is offering a generous starter plan specifically for Code Story listeners. Head over to terso.tech/codestory and get started today. That's t u r s o.tech/codestory. Terso Welcome to the Data Edge. Let's flip to scalability. Did you build this to scale efficiently from day one? Or are you fighting this as you grow and gain traction? Or did you have to? And I'm, and I'm curious, given the types of customers you're, you're serving there. So I'm curious where we're going to go. There's two things that you can't add after the fact, in my experience, which are security and scalability. I've been building software in enterprise identity and security for over 25 years. And I've always worked with the biggest, highest performing, most demanding environments. And when you think about your approach to scalability, I think one of the the key things that we keep in mind is to never have a single point of failure. Things always fail. I always assume, however, that failure is gonna happen. And often it could be through no fault of the software. It could have a data link that goes down or some other thing like that. Thinking about redundancy from day one allowed us to make sure that we architected things, for instance, the session systems. If you have stateful sessions and a system fails, then you're gonna lose all of your sessions and that causes a lot of headaches and problems. So thinking about stateless sessions and how you can do that and how you can scale both horizontally and vertically allowed us to build this really high performance piece of software, which is really small. The whole executable is not even 30 megabytes. This thing can run at 40,000 simultaneous transactions per second. And if you need more capacity than that, you just add more orchestrators. So scalability was really key and that's how we did it. And then the second thing was security. The way I think about security is you design it from the beginning. You design it in to your software and to your architecture. And consequently, you don't get a situation where after the fact, you're trying to retrofit something and make it secure after it's out in the market and it becomes a very problematic. So from a security standpoint, we put security in at the very beginning from a design standpoint, and then we test all of our code with static code analysis, and we run a lot of test-driven development. Everything we do is TDD-based, and then we deploy it and we run penetration tests, and we're always trying to break it before someone else does. And then you hire third parties and auditors that come and do the same. So security is one of these things that never stops. It's perennial. And I think one other example of what we've done is most breaches in security have to do with compromised passwords. So as an example of design, security by design, we said, look, there'll never be a password in Strata software. 
and the training we give to every engineer is if you're ever coding a verification of a password in our software, stop. Do not go any further. We're never going to have a password in there. And there's alternative ways to do authentication, for instance, with pass keys or multi-factor authentication and OpenID Connect and SAML and all sorts of different ways. And so we just designed it so that there's no way that you can bring a password to log into uh, our software. I think that's gone a long way to avoiding one of the most common pitfalls of vulnerabilities is someone forgets, I didn't realize I had a password sitting around on a file system and someone could pick it up and do something with it. So design software in a very secure way and then check it every single time you commit, you know, pretty much continually from a penetration standpoint. So as you step out on the balcony, you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I think one of the things I'm most proud of in, in the software we built here with Strata is that it can run in every place that we've had to deploy it. And the other great thing is that it has never once been the source of a SEV1 issue. The software is completely resilient. It's never gone down. Or if a component goes down, we have other ways to compensate and fail over. For customers that put their faith and trust in Strata to know that this security system will not fail because of the way that we designed it and the way that four years running now has never gone down. I'm really proud of that. And it's not just my hand in it, but the whole company, everyone takes that reputation very seriously. And so I think if there's any mark that we can have in the market, it's that Strata builds software that is secure and will never let you down. And I think that's something to be, be real proud of. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I think a, a, a design decision that I regretted in my second company that we were building for SaaS, the customers were asking us for on-prem. And instead of saying, look, we're not gonna build this to run on-premises, we're only gonna be focused on SaaS, we wound up spreading ourselves really thin and having to build both a SaaS component and an on-premises component. It made it really hard to move the software forward because we had all of this software that was installed in customer environments. You wanna add a new feature and you wanna add enhancements. In that company, Simplified, we had to wait until customers would do an upgrade and customers don't like to upgrade enterprise infrastructure except for at very specific times. We had all sorts of customers that were running on old software that didn't have the latest functionality. So that was one of those hard won lessons because it cost us millions and millions of dollars and it slowed our innovation down. So when we started Strata, we made a real clear demarcation to say, this is how the software is gonna work. Here's how we're going to update it. And now we have everybody on our cloud platform. We're able to add all these features and functionality. We'll do four or five releases a week. And that means that our customers all get access to that latest and greatest, the SaaS distribution model. 
looking back on it, the path to ruin was lined with riches. We were getting paid millions of dollars to build that on-premises software back in, in the day. And it's hard when you're an early stage startup to turn down a $7 million deal, right? You'd be like crazy to do that. But what it wound up costing us was a lot more than the revenue that we got. And so I think that would be the, the thing that was a hard learned lesson and something that a mistake or a regret if I would. And I think the answer to it, the way to avoid it is to be clear on your strategy and stick to your guns because there'll be other customers that will love you for what you do really well. And that's where I focus all my energy now. Okay, let's switch to you, Eric. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or something you look up to and why. I think in terms of inventing things, I love the old Renaissance artist. Michelangelo is a huge inspiration to me. I studied art, fine art in college as well. And just to see the brilliance of someone like Michelangelo and to a different degree that Leonardo da Vinci, but they were both so remarkable in that they could balance the hard science and the art together, right? And you think about the architecture behind things like the St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome and the Sistine Chapel and the idea that you could build the structure and do that at such a massive scale with such rudimentary tools at your disposal. That was really inspiring because it's not about the tool, it's about the person using the tool. And then I think a lot of the philosophy that I follow comes from Buddhist and Taoist philosophies. And a big part of that is this notion of Wu Wei, which is flow like water. And when you see how water finds its way down a hill, or if you pour it out, it naturally and gracefully knows exactly what to do. It always finds the lowest point. And when it hits an obstacle, it doesn't get frustrated, it doesn't get deterred. It just goes around it. <laughs> and eventually it'll wear down even the, the hardest rocks can't hold up to the flow of water. I like to practice that as much as I can. And in startup land, there's nothing but obstacles every single day. And what gets me motivated to uh, keep going is to remember just to flow like water and expect an obstacle because that becomes a very confirming thing once you can get around what seems to be an intractable problem and you can solve it because you just keep trying keep flowing that to me is the kind of the magic the elixir <laughs> that keeps me going last question so you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world and can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice to give that person having gone down this road a bit? I guess I would ask them, why did they build this? Why are they doing this? And I start with that notion of why. I think there's been some good stuff written about Simon Sinek or did some TED Talks on it. But when you start with why and you, you have a clear sense of the motivator, the drive and the rationale is a proxy for so much. And often the answer could be because I want to prove that I can do it. I finally have my shot. 
And then you're getting an insight to their character and what drives them, what motivates them. Sometimes the why is because I struggled with this at my last company and I saw firsthand that this was a huge problem. So that tells me that this person comes from very deep domain experience. The least interesting answer is I want to make a lot of money. There's a long road to success in startups and money is the last thing actually in my world anyways as a motivator because you got to find something deeper to motivate you to get through the real tough time. That's why I would ask why and to see what their character is, what their experience is and what their motivation is. I think that's a great question to ask. Well, Eric, thank you for being on the show today. And thank you for telling the creation story of Strata Identity. Thanks for having me, Noah. It was great. And this concludes another chapter of Coat Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.